0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today's guest is Monica Dixon, Chief Administrative Officer and President of External Affairs for Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns several teams and arenas in the D.C. area. Its subsidiaries include the NBA's Wizards, the NHL's Capitals, the WNBA's Washington Mystics, and Capital One Arena. Monica has spent her career in politics and government at the highest levels. She's worked in the House, the Senate, and the White House. She started her career on the campaign trail and then came to Washington to work for U.S. Senators Tom Daschle and then Jay Rockefeller. Then she crossed the Capitol and became Chief of Staff at the House Democratic Caucus under the leadership of Congressman Vic Fazio. Not long after that, the White House came knocking, Monica joined the staff of the Clinton White House, where she served as deputy chief of staff for Vice President Al Gore. When Al Gore ran for president in 2000, Monica was one of his top advisors. Monica joined Monumental Sports in 2016, and in between that and her stint in the White House, she helped run several organizations dedicated to increasing voter turnout and electing Democrats, and also established her own successful political consulting firm. Monica is respected across this town and across government, politics, and now sports. She and I sat down to talk on Monday, June 13th. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Monica Dixon, welcome to Staffer.
1: Thank you, I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am delighted uh, to be talking with you this morning. Um, As you may know, I like to start my conversations with folks at the beginning, learning a little bit about uh, kind of where they grew up and what family life was like. So, can you tell me that a a bit?
1: Sure, sure. I um, actually grew up in South Dakota. Um, My my family moved around a little bit. We went to Kentucky and then Saginaw, Michigan, and then back to South Dakota. My dad was a pharmacist for the VA hospital, so he got transferred around, and I got a chance to understand that there are different places and different cultures when I was growing up, but, you know, South Dakota was my home, and I went to college in South Dakota, and then, um, you know, got swept into politics when Tom Daschle ran for Senate.
0: So that's how you met uh, uh, politics, as it were, at college Mm -hmm. when— Con- then Congressman Daschle was running for the U.S. Senate. Exactly, exactly. And what was your role on that campaign?
1: Well, I had a I had an interesting start because I was still in college. I was uh, tra- I was in my junior year of college, and I was able to secure an internship in Washington, D.C. with a group called Freeze Voter Pack, and um, I'm, I came here for a month. I worked as an intern and then they paid my salary to go work for Tom Daschle. That was their contribution. Ah. So the second half of the summer, I worked for Tom Daschle and loved it and, you know, became, you know, a campaign rat and decided to, in my senior year, the first semester, uh, do a work study program and I ended up getting 12 hours of credit uh, to work on the campaign and Tom won and I wanted to go to Washington with him and so he brought me with him in January and then you know I took a couple classes to try to finish up that second semester of my senior year and eventually finished all the credits um, but it took a number of years and so I moved to Washington before I graduated, started working on his Senate staff, and that's how I got here.
0: Oh, that's incredible. So you were, you were working in politics before you were a college graduate, and uh, on the Hill even, in Washington. And what was your role there? You know, it's uh,
1: like most of the people who come on your show, you start wherever you can start, right? right. And I was a computer assistant, which meant at the time, and this is going to really date me, that I would take the mail that was um, written by our our LCs and I would retype it because we only had two computers when Tom won the Senate race. Um, We eventually got more, but it was just the sort of holdup. So I retyped every single... Mm -hmm letter to constituents, I would come in at like seven in the morning, I would leave at 10 o'clock at night. And that's what I did. And I made $15,000 a year. And I did that for like five or six months. And then Pete Rouse, who was the chief of staff, who many people who listen to your podcast know very well, said, you know, I'm going to promote you. And um, I'm going to promote you to an LC now. And so that's how I started my career. And, you know, I remember when he promoted me, he gave me an extra $1,000. So I went up to $16,000 a year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Um, well, well, uh, Senator Daschle himself went on also to an incredible career, eventually becoming the Democratic leader in the Senate, uh, where he served in the majority and as, as minority leader. Um, and you were with him uh, and kind of in his orbit throughout his career. You also mm-hmm. spent some time with Senator Rockefeller. Is that right?
1: That's right. I, um, I spent uh, a couple years in the Senate office um, with Senator Daschle and um, kind of moved up and started working on legislative work. And I really loved research. And um, at the time, Senator Pressler was running for re-election. His cycle was coming up. And I started when I realized all the tools that existed in Washington in terms of public records, I started doing research and I got really interested in the role that a research director plays in campaigns, in part because I had started to look at Senator Pressler's um, travel and I created this whole notebook of how he'd spent more time out of the country than actually in South Dakota and um, and got really interested in that part of the, of, of campaign work. And Senator Rockefeller was up for reelection then that next cycle. And, um, I transferred over to his office to work as research director. And at the time, the research director could work on the Senate staff as long as they were doing, um, uh, personal record research. And then I moved to his campaign. Uh, so that's, it was about a year and a half with Senator Rockefeller.
0: You know, it, it the the role of research in campaigns really is an underappreciated part externally. People who are inside campaigns know, you know, the role that it plays, but outside people see the travel, the events, the commercials. Um, they don't necessarily appreciate that one or sometimes teams of people have spent many, many, many months, sometimes years, researching every detail of a person's service, every vote, every committee hearing, every bit of travel, as you pointed out, to find what the facts are to support or disprove, you know, a narrative or a claim that's being made.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, for me, when I think back on it, I do think it was incredibly formative for me because now in well i i think it happened throughout uh the roles i've had in politics and certainly now working um on, in a corporate setting the ability to understand the data understand the facts and then draw narratives draw that conclusion um you know that Pressler spent more time out of the country than in south dakota you know, you have to have both parts of that analytical ability. You know, you have to be able to deal with the tedious and pull all the facts together, but then also understand what does that mean? What does it mean for a narrative and how does it compare to the person they're running against? And so when you put all those things together, that's really how I think you build a great communications plan and a great narrative.
0: Yep. And the other thing, uh, my observation that research people have is they develop a willingness to speak uncomfortable truths, sometimes to their friends and colleagues, right? Sometimes the, you know, there are other people on the campaign who might want to make a claim or say something, and it's the, it falls to the research director to say, ah, not exactly true. Or, right, to, to be true, it needs to be, you, we need to say this other type of thing. Or, hey, we've got a vulnerability in this area ourselves. And that, too, is a good muscle. It's a check on the system for strong research people to be steeped in the facts and a culture that that is willing to only go as far as the facts support.
1: I uh, Exactly. And you know what else it does is it, allows you to build a relationship with your principal. Um, you, you know, one of the most important skills I think in politics and almost in anything is being able to manage up, right. It is understanding who you're working for, what their strengths and weaknesses are, but as important, how to say hard things, how to say, you know, my recommendation is a no on this and why. And, um, that is a skill set that is, it is, like you said, it's a muscle you have to exercise. Because most of the time, at the beginning of my career, I did it wrong. You know, you, 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 coming from South Dakota, I was very comfortable with just saying the facts and just saying, well, no, that won't work. Um, What I learned through the process and through these jobs was, you know, how to really listen to what someone is Ask what they're asking you, what they mean, what they want, and to try to meet them as close as you can while delivering uncomfortable truths. Um, and that so that is a very difficult skill to develop. I still make lots of mistakes, but I'm better at it than I was 30 years ago.
0: You're absolutely right. What an important skill. Um so I mean, your career uh was really, you know, in, in politics has been a Really impressive and incredible rocket ship. After your time with Senator Rockefeller, you became chief of staff for the House Democratic Caucus. Um, the mm-hmm. chairman at that time was Congressman Vic Fazio of California. Um, I too spent some time in the in the Senate and on the House side. Um, in fact, I worked for in, in the leadership structures of Senator Daschle, and when he was co chair of, of a committee with Senator Rockefeller, um, and then I came over to the House side. How do you compare the cultures and do you have a preference between Senate and House?
1: Wow, well there as you know, that it couldn't be more different, right? I mean um the Senate is a little bit more formal and um you know, I will say here that um my first day in Senator Rockefeller's office, I wore a pantsuit and I was advised that women were not allowed to wear pantsuits in the Senate, um in Senator Rockefeller's office and so that was a big lesson to learn. And while the Senate wasn't yeah. that way in every Senate office, it it certainly um, was in uh, Senator Rockefeller's office. And so I went to the House side and it was just the opposite. There was a casualness, there was a comfort, there was, um, a you know, it was a place where raw emotion shows up on the floor in a way that, you know, it just doesn't in the Senate. And you can build relationships um, so much easier. So it's just so much easier on the House side. And and maybe that's because the staffs are smaller, the members are more accessible. But uh, that was a big difference that I noted right away.
0: Yeah. Uh, so after your stint there, um, the White House came calling. Uh, in 1997, uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore were reelected. And you joined the staff of Vice President Gore as his deputy chief of staff. Um, can you talk about what your role was in that office as his deputy chief of staff?
1: Yes, it was. I, you know, It was probably the most formative uh, position I've ever had. Um, I was brought on board primarily because of my um, political and um, Uh, Political background, and just a a second to go back. um, When I went to the House side and worked for Congressman Fazio, my first job was as the political director of the DCCC in 1994. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, we lost in that. Obviously, that's when we lost the House for the first time in 40 years. And I um, spent a good deal of time traipsing over to the White House and talking about our poll numbers and you know, there was a lot of disbelief on, um, among the democratic party leadership that we could lose as many seats as we were counseling them. We were about to lose. And so I guess, you know, in a perverse way, I'd built up some credibility on, on that side with, with my friends in the white house. And, um, after spending a year and a half with Vic, uh, Building up the Democratic caucus and uh, trying to operate for the first time in the minority, uh, I had a skill set that was both political but also um, policy, as I understood the House itself and what we could do and what we couldn't do. Um, and so uh, the vice president reached out once he knew that Vic was retiring and asked me to come on board. And I did. And it was a job that was focused on his travel, um, where he should be going, what he should be doing, how he could build relationships in um, key places with important leadership to advance the president and the vice president's agenda. And um, I was also his traveling chief of staff. So I was on the road with him, you know, three days a week. And we, we were always, I mean, I don't remember a week when we didn't travel at least three days. Um, he had a portfolio that was huge, um, uh, both from a policy perspective and then also in terms of what he wanted to understand and learn about the states that um, we were spending a lot of time in.
0: Well, and I think it's fair to say that his vice presidency changed the way vice presidencies are viewed and handled. Um, I, I remember reading at the time just that he and and Clinton sort of struck a relationship that from the outset, they were going to make sure that the vice presidency wasn't just a, you know, a figurehead role, that he was going to get into issues and advance the president's agenda in a way that was unique. Um and you were help. You were there uh, at, at you know that second term at a at a time when not only was he you know advancing the president's agenda, but he was also setting himself up right for a run in two thousand. So how did you you know once you entered that role? How did you you know and he manage both of those things simultaneously?
1: I think his. First priority was to um, focus in on the policy areas that he was responsible for. And so we spent a lot of time and he, you know, he was somebody who studied a lot, who, you know, dug deep into data. So a lot of our travel was built around that. There was kind of that Venn diagram overlap of activity that we could engage in in iowa and new hampshire and the early states and and we did and we used that time to build relationships so we got we we really were able to both uh, advance a policy agenda and advance a personal and political agenda that was about building relationships in key places and so that that is why we were on the road three days a week. And at least, and, you know, the other thing that the vice president ended up doing a lot was dealing with, um, natural disasters and others, uh, disasters. And, um, and so we would travel when there was a tornado in the South or a flood and, or fires in Florida. And, you know, one of the most, um, significant events of my life was uh going with the vice president to columbine Mm. and speaking uh, with those family members and walking in a procession to a a community event that i I don't i don't know that any one of us on the plane that day were the same afterwards and so um you know working there (laughs) gave me the opportunity to do sort of the politics piece, the policy piece, but then the unexpected piece of understanding America in a way that I never, never could have uh, without that job.
0: Yeah. You know, Columbine, um, it really is a landmark event for those of us who lived through it. And I didn't live through it like you did. I did not visit Columbine or have to experience, you know, the the trauma uh, inflicted on on the victims and that entire community. Um, but it, it did change the way we looked at the world and the country a bit. Um, and we're still living in that. And obviously right now, uh, this morning, uh, on the morning that we're talking, the 13th of June, it looks like a deal is coming together, um, for some modest but essential, uh, gun control legislation. Um, you know when you take a step back at your career and and look at the arc of um you know what has happened with with school safety and the the immediate response and and how we're still struggling with it today what are some of the the takeaways um you know that you have from that experience
1: you know it's something uh, you know i grew up in the west and you know there were guns in my household people hunted i you know went out and shot with my brother um <clears throat> so I was comfortable with guns. But it was in the 1994 elections that, you know, we lost the house for the first time and the crime bill and guns in my view were a critical part of our loss. Um you know, healthcare was also controversial at the time, but the crime bill is when we really started to see incumbents who had been in office for, you know, a decade or two in these states that we think of as swing states. And at the time, I mean, they weren't, but now they're not even swing states, they're red states. We started to see the numbers drop. You know, we passed an assault weapon ban during my lifetime in politics. And so I have seen extremes um, as I've, as I've progressed, but it's one of the things that I feel just the most sort of <laughs> like inconsolable about, um, is that we have not either as a party or just as government servants and, and servants of the people been able to, you know, provide a solution for this, that meets America in a place that, um, you know it is, and that would make things better for kids,
0: yeah, so I, I was going to ask you about this later, but um since it seems like now is a is a good time to reference the fact that after um though I'm going to come back to it after your time in the White House, you worked for a number of different uh, organizations dedicated to electing Democrats, several different types of PACs. You also formed your own very successful uh, political consulting firm. and South Dakota has always been part of your political DNA. So helping elect uh, Tim Johnson uh, back to the Senate, um, also working on Senator Daschle's campaign, um, numerous other candidates as well. But what I'm building up to is that I mean, part of the challenge with governance today is that we as Democrats have a hard time electing, uh, you know, statewide. Um, office holders in states like North and South Dakota you know like when when I first came to the Senate we had several senators from those states um in fact at one point I think we had all four, four. Yes, yes we did all uh, right um and today obviously it's such a different scenario not to say that we don't in some states like Montana with John tester like it is possible but it's extremely hard so tell me what do you see as uh, you know, when it can be done successfully, I will guess they, I'll ask the question this way. When it's done successfully, what do successful Democratic candidates do in red states like that?
1: You know, they're just deeply connected um, to the people in those states. They still live there. They're still part of the community. And I think when they start to have problems is when they obviously get too aligned, not necessarily with the Democratic Party, but with Washington and so anything that sort of defines them as not from the community that they are from, uh, it's just, it's the third rail. And so it's it's less about policy it because you can support uh, a progressive cause and live in South Dakota if the community that you're from understands why and what your values are. I think it's much harder, you know, if you succumb to sort of the the Washington lifestyle, where you know there's pictures of you in tuxedos and with you know with a with a car service and a mansion and all those things. It just uh, it's it's cultural, it's it's connection, and it's less policy. Is my
0: sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let me ask you about the the other type of of chemists. So let me take you back to uh to uh 1999 2000. Um Al Gore is gearing up and, and then running in the presidential, but there's a primary and a really tough primary challenge mm-hmm. that I think some folks forget about uh from the left from Bill Bradley. Um what did what, you, what are some of your takeaways from that race which obviously you won? Um but it was hard. So, you know, what do you take away from that race?
1: Uh, you know, it was hard, and in some ways, the the difficulty that we're facing as Democrats right now, um, where uh, our party uh, feels far apart on the most progressive side to the most moderate side, um, I didn't feel that um, with Senator Bradley and and in this primary. Um, there were differences on policy um and i think the big differentiator really came down to agriculture when we were in the o- Iowa primary uh the Iowa caucus and 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 that's what i remember i you know it i don't y- you wouldn't be able to understand that living in the current democratic party because it was a policy difference it wasn't a um a difference that was defined as your liberalness or your progressiveness or your conservativeness the way that um, it sometimes can be for us
0: in the Democratic Party today. Yeah. Um, okay. Two-part question. Was there a moment during that primary that you, it struck you and you thought, uh-oh, like we've got a bigger problem here than we thought? And then second part question, Was there? You know, what was the moment when you're like, okay, I think we've turned the corner here?
1: Well, I, I didn't feel the, um, that sort of nervousness about losing. Honestly, I felt very confident throughout when I felt like we had, it was this town hall meeting, um, that we had, uh, it was a candidate forum and, and, uh, and, and they were talking about agriculture and the vice president is, uh, genuine and real and knows how he feels about it and came across so authentic that I think that was it. And it was a topic that, you know, for all the normal reasons a senator from the Northeast would have, it was a little more difficult for him. Um, While he understood the policy that the language and the way that you communicate in that community just didn't come across as well as it could have. And that's when I think I knew. I think that's when most folks knew that 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 the vice president was going to be the stronger candidate.
0: Yeah. Well, so he 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 uh, was an exceedingly strong candidate. Went on um, in a. We all know what happened in 2000, and it was mm-hmm. it was heartbreak. Um, and the consequences of of the George W. Bush uh, presidency, particularly that four years, are enormous. Um, what had been a surplus and an opportunity to invest um, went to a tax cut. And the response to 9-11 with the Iraq war was obviously very different than would have happened under a Gore presidency. Um, but my my question is that, you know, as I've reflected on politics, heartbreak is part of it. It's, you know, getting into this business means you're going to have wonderful highs, but you are going to have heartbreaking losses too. So my question for you is, You know, how how did you deal with that? And what do you what do you, you know, say to folks who are going through a loss when they just put their whole bodies and souls into it?
1: Well, I don't think I dealt well with it because after the Supreme Court decision, I said I'm I'm never working in politics again. You know, I'm done. This is I will work strictly on policy related issues and things I care about but I will not work on another campaign. I just, I, I was just done. I And, you know, that was probably, that is not the right way to respond to a loss. Um, but what happened is that I started my own consulting um, company and my first job was working for California Governor Gray Davis during the energy crisis. And I would fly out there on Monday morning and fly home on Thursday And it was um, a summer where there were rolling brownouts and I was working with him on this 2020 program and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, But you know what? After about a year, I was itching (laughs) to work and I had sort of just come around. It took me a year. And so my advice is the only thing that will heal you is time. And you have to get your, you have to start sleeping again. You have to physically get back into shape. You have to start eating right. And and when that happens, the healing part happens. Uh, but you have to take care of yourself. I mean, so many of us, when you work in politics, you just don't sleep. And you work all the time. And that really screws up your judgment. And, yeah. um, and that's the worst possible thing for you when you're in a really important high profile position. And so one of the things I've tried to do, um, since then is find that balance. So I'm better because I don't think when I was exhausted in my third year at the white house that I made good decisions. I just, I just didn't. And, you know, you tell people. I I have shared this advice with younger people and they look at me and nod and they're like, I can tell what they're really thinking is, oh yeah, but I'm okay. I I can work, I can work 16 or 18 hours a day. It's it, it that's, I'm fine. It's like, mm, no, <laughs> right. it would be so much
0: better if you would work 10 hours a day. <laughs> right. Only 10. Right. Um so the other, you know, something that uh, hearing you describe the campaign life, the, the upside or one of the many upsides of working in politics is the family you form out on the mm-hmm. campaign trail and really in the trenches. And you have been a part of several political families that, you know, I think are legendary. The, the Dashel, you know, family tree is absolutely incredible. The Gore family tree of staff is absolutely incredible. Um, can you share with me some, you know, some of the folks who come to mind when you reflect on those days in in South Dakota or traveling around the country um, who just are, you know, top of their game and and contributed to your development and, and appreciation for you know, involvement in politics?
1: Well Pete Rouse is first um, Pete uh, I was not a strong writer. Um, it was not something that I spent a lot of time on in um, in school and Pete would get so frustrated with me. He would edit all my mail when I was a um, when I was uh, starting out in the Senate office and I had to learn how to write based on his edits because he would get very frustrated and say, why do I have to keep making the same correction? And so I learned, you know, <laughs> so he, he, uh, he definitely changed my life. Laura Petru, who was uh, Senator Daschle's top policy person, legislative director was also a massive impact on my life. She was always calm, always cool. I, I think I learned demeanor from Laura um and then in Gore world, I had the chance to work with Ron Klein, and so I learned um a lot from Ron, particularly around how you can start to see five or six steps in front of you um and and that that was critical um uh for all of the work I've done since then uh so it's. It was, it was just a lovely group of people. Um, You know, one funny story is David Morehouse was our trip director for Gore. So we were on the road together a lot. And I remember him telling me once, you know, I really, my dream job is to work back in Pittsburgh uh, for the, for the NHL team. And I really think that that's something I want to do someday. And he ended up being the top person for the entire organization that then won three Stanley Cups. And um, he has just now started to pull back a little bit, but he's legendary now in the NHL and and certainly um, in Pittsburgh for everything he's done, not just for the team, but for the community. So, <laughs> you know, like so many of us who had the chance to work in the White House, the people that we work with have gone on to become amazingly successful uh people in all walks of life
0: it's so true uh and it's also that is a a perfect transition because you're one of those people um and you happen to be in sports since 2016 (laughs) you've been at monumental sports and entertainment uh which uh owns uh within it has several uh teams and arenas in the dc area that's the wizards the caps the Mystics, and the Capital One arena itself. So what made you want to go from politics to sports?
1: Well, sports was not a part of my career path, Uh, certainly one that I not thought I would would, uh, pursue. But when I was consulting, one of the um, uh, clients I had was D.C. 2024, the Olympic bid effort um, for Washington, D.C. to host the Olympics. And uh, I loved the work and eventually became the COO for the bid. And our board was made up of many of the professional sports team ownership. And so I got to know Ted Leonsis and really liked him. And when we lost the bid after a year and a half, he asked me to come on board as a consultant. And I said, look, I'll try it. I'm not sure I, I, I you know, I can be of value, but i, I I'd love to give it a try. And it was unique for Ted at the time because he was just moving into a full time CEO position with all the teams, but he also, um, had a big role still has a big role at revolution which is a um, venture capital fund um has several funds now and um and he was deeply involved in philanthropy around the city and what he needed was somebody who could connect all the dots of his world and and have them inter interact with each other, work with each other and grow together. And so I was able to do that. It was a lot of strategic planning work for the first couple of years. And then I moved full time into a position here at Monumental Sports and work with Ted primarily on um, on his teams now, uh, which is a which is an incredible um, opportunity to learn about sports, to understand sports and to have a real impact in the D.C. community, which I care a great deal about.
0: Yeah. So can you talk a a bit about your role and sort of what, what, you know, as the organization's goals are, uh, for Mm -hmm. any timeline you want to give me, whether that's a one year or five year, um, because all of us, I think most of us experience sports and the offerings of the Capital One Center through the teams, right? The games themselves, um, or the entertainment, uh, you know, artists, et cetera, that are, that are brought Mm -hmm. there. Um, Behind the curtain is a whole organization <laughs> that you are a part of running. Um, and I'm curious, like, as you think of the teams and, and the community, how you set a plan and what you're hoping to achieve with those plans.
1: Well, Ted's primary objective for all his teams is to win championships, period. That's our goal. And if we are not in the playoffs and we don't get there, we've failed. It's very singular. Um he he also obviously wants to grow Monumental Sports to become, you know, the, the world's best um, entertainment um, company. And that means having a diversity of options for our fans and creating a wonderful fan experience here. So we really, we work hard first and foremost to bring the most talented players we can uh, to our franchises and to create strong and fun (laughs) to watch teams. And then it's also to make sure that when people are here as guests, either for a concert or for Disney on ice or for our games, they have a wonderful experience. And so Ted sets out those goals. And as an organization, we have, uh, different components that meet them. Um, We have a a team operations group in front office for the Wizards, for the Mystics, for the Capitals, and now for our NBA 2K team. So we have sort of those four concentric circles of people whose sole job is to support that team. Then we have a whole venues operation that makes Capital One Arena uh, look, even though it's coming up on its 25th anniversary, like it was only built 10 years ago, um, which is an enormous amount of work and uh, the result of a lot of resources spent on it. And then we have um, on top of that, a business team. So that's our sales teams. That's our sponsorship team, our partnership teams. They're the people that are one-on-one with fans, pitching season tickets, pitching sponsorships. So there's that whole business operations. And then what sits on top of all of that is our, our corporate executive team. And that's, that's the role I play. And I work primarily on all external affairs. So government, community, uh, communications, and I'm also the chief administrative officer. So as we were going through COVID, I was the COVID testing officer, and I worked really closely with everyone to make sure that the building was safe when we could open it. So there's a behind what you see on the floor or uh, behind what you hear in a concert are all these different groups of people working. For us, it's 612 people, I think, full-time staff and uh, between two and 4,000 part-time staff that are in a pool that work with us almost every night. Um, this building is open almost every night. You know, we have a couple months during the year, February and March, where there we might have two nights where the building is dark. Um, otherwise, it is, it is <laughs> you know, it reminds me of campaigns in some ways, at least those last, you know, six weeks of campaigns. Uh, that's what February and March leading into playoffs feels like
0: here. Yeah, I, look, I think some people who aren't familiar with politics or sports could look at a person like Ted Leonsis, you know, a tech entrepreneur and, and highly successful person in the sports world, picking a political person, you know, into the role that he brought you on and has you operating in and think, hmm, how does that make sense? But to your point, I actually think there's a real direct thread from all of your campaign work and political work, you know, official and unofficial uh, or official and campaign work. Um, that is really relevant to running a very complex, high-profile organization.
1: You know, I, I would hire someone with political experience before I would hire anybody with business experience. And the reason is because we don't think of it this way as political people, but basically you're running a startup. You start with a piece of paper and another person sitting across from you and you build a run rate up to $30 million, $50 million, depending on what um, state you're in, in 18 months. And you deliver a product and you you have a day where you're judged. And that skill set is wildly applicable to every business job I've had and worked with. And, you know, you just don't get experience like that anywhere in the world. And, and so... I think it does transfer. I think this, the skill set you're developing as a political or policy person is applicable just about anywhere. And I I would encourage people, what I learned is that you can go try something. You, you're going to be surprised how successful you are and how you just automatically know how to do it because of what you've learned in campaigns.
0: You know, um, you You've hired so many people in campaigns and in government and now in the private sector, and as you said, you you look for folks with that you know political experience. what are what are the qualities when you are you're back when you were you know hiring for campaigns? What were some of the hallmarks that you were looking for from staffers?
1: Uh, i The first thing that jumps out at me is their communication skill. How do they talk about themselves? How do they talk about um, a situation? Can they describe and uh, engage with you on on a problem and problem solving? Because that, to me, indicates how their how their mind works, what they think about. Um, that's like just one of those things when you're talking to somebody in the first interview that, for me, is critical. But then the second part. And again, it might have been my own experience with Pete Rouse is I want to know they can write. Um, and that's partly because I'm not the strongest writer, but it's also because it's so critical to communicate. And, um, and if I was going to, you know, I say this to my, my twins all the time, and they're freshmen in college right now, write, write, write. You have to learn to write. Um, and, and that's what I want when I'm interviewing with somebody. Is I want yeah. to know they can write. And I want, I want to see. I, we do writing tests for everything here.
0: Yep. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. The more you write, the more you, you realize it's about choices. Like choices and clarity. Exactly. <laughs> right? and, uh, that's, and that's what governance is. That's what management is. Is being able to make choices and, and communicate them clearly.
1: And, it, and um, it's, a, it's what leadership is.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And
1: well, and if you are going to be a leader in any organization, you have to be able to um, communicate what you mean and and be able to ask questions so that you know that they've heard what you meant, because those two things are different. Everybody's looking at it from a different perspective. So you have to listen and be open to really hearing what they're saying and knowing if they're if they're if they've heard what you what you're um, asking and what you care about and what your values are.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, since we we talked a bit about uh, Ted Leonsis, as I mentioned, for anyone unfamiliar with his background, I mean, he helped build AOL into a, you know, a global uh, company and phenomenon. Uh, he has started many other successful businesses. Um, He's recognized as you know, a business leader of, of the highest order, one of the most influential people in sports. Um, I was, I, I read an interview where he talked about owning these sports franchises as holding a public trust, right? Mm-hmm. That they weren't his; they belonged to the to the community, and he is sort of a caretaker. Right? He he said, "I'm not going to be the owner forever, and you know, I hope to keep in the family for as long as I can, but at some point, this is somebody else's team. This is." the community's team forever. And so, you know, given his background and and that sort of point of view, which I found really resonant, my question for you is what have you learned from him about leadership? That's such a good
1: question. He is, um, you know, I came to work here because of him, not because of sports. Um, it was because I found him to be so innovative and so interesting and he was so his his mind um can flow from great music to a great book to a film to a sports team to a technology i mean to Groupon and everything he wanted to do with the i mean it was just it was i thought every day was going to be different and uh, it has been Um, And so, you know, what I see as one of his great skills is his ability to connect dots across lots of different platforms and really um, bundle it all up into something amazing, a product, a business. And that's what I've learned and what I think um, some of his great skill set is. But, you know, the community piece of it for him also Connected with my political background. Um, He cares deeply about the community. And when he wants to win a championship, it isn't because, you know, everybody gets a ring and, you know, there's a parade. It's because of the memories that that is that that it provides for families and kids and, you know, everyone who's in the stands and. That was his experience as a kid. And he wants to give that to other people. And so it was easy to work for someone like Ted with political background and having a progressive mindset because he cares so much. And I will say, I think he might be one of the most generous people I've ever met. Um, and, and one of the kindest people, and I'm not sure, you know, that that would be true if you were talking about another billionaire or another, like, you know, person who's started many successful companies. I hope it's yeah. true. But um, I only know that in my circumstance, I am I feel very lucky.
0: OK, I could talk to you all day, uh, but I have two final questions for you, one of which I think you may have already answered. I like to ask folks uh, if if I could build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall who they would nominate and you talked about Pete Rouse, and, who's already a member, by the way, nominated several times. He is such a legend. Laura Petru, uh, mm-hmm. who has not yet been nominated, but uh, we could put her certainly uh, on the ballot and and build that a bronze bust. Um, others uh, who may be on your list.
1: Well, is Ron Klein on your list? And Ron
0: he... Klein, of course. And Ron Klein, okay. of course, because you mentioned him uh, as well. And and yes, I believe he is. He is a member.
1: Yes, um, Kate Bangfield, I would put up there. Um, I think she is a rock star and, um, it's just like a true believer and incredibly talented. So, uh, Laura and Kate, I would, I would throw them on your list.
0: Excellent. All right, good. They are in the hall of fame. Um, okay. My last question for you, I call it in the vault. Tell me about a time when you made a mistake. Um, (laughs) it was gut wrenching, but you learned from it. Uh, you recovered from it. And you're better for it.
1: Oh, boy. Well, um, when the vice president was announcing for president, we started our day in Carthage, and it was a beautiful event. Everything went well. And then we went up to New Hampshire, and um, we did you know, the normal setup, normal advance. And during his speech a person right behind him unveiled a poster that um, was critical of the vice president for not being more focused on the environment, which is, you know, one of these things that um, you said uh, the world changed because of that election. And it certainly did in more ways than we could possibly um, uh, count. But um, we we didn't do the job we needed to do um, to make that event as you know, go as well as it could. And, you know, what I learned, because I got asked a lot, you know, I was responsible for that site. um, And what I learned is how to talk about it. Because I remember at one point being asked what happened. And I was thinking, you know, we just didn't have the experience to kind of look for rolled up posters under people's clothes. And, you know, and, and that was, you know, I guess that was the right answer, but it, it made the staff that were working with me feel like, you know, they had done something wrong. They weren't experienced enough. And when all of that is happening at once, it's super important. What I learned is to, is to just own that mistake, not try to explain it and just apologize. Because in the end, what matters most is all those folks who were working on it, feeling good and happy about it. And it is no biggie for me in the role I had then to say, you know, I screwed up and like, and just own it. And, and, uh, and instead it, I think it came across as <clears throat> I was dumping it off on other folks. And I look back on that a lot actually. And, and think about it. Um, and, and wish I would have handled it differently, but, But I learned, you know, that's that's just not what uh, you need to be doing when when the principal asks you, you know, what the hell happened? And you're just like, hey, I screwed up. I made a mistake and move on. And that would have been the best way to handle it.
0: It's such a a beautiful and important lesson and such a hallmark of leadership, of good leaders. And it surprises me not at all that that was (laughs) what you took away from it. And Monica, I, I can't thank you enough. I'm just, uh, I've been a, an admirer of yours for so many years. Um, and as a citizen, I appreciate all that you've given uh, in governance and politics. And I'm an admirer of what you're doing today. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. And thanks for doing this podcast. I hope that um, it's uh, it's helpful for people who are listening. And I hope they stay inspired and keep working in our world because it's so important right now.
0: I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at Staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.